Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. It is being recorded on the 27th of January for the listening week that begins the 28th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week you'll be hearing current events and news from Denver, Boulder area and national. Following that, in a nod to January being the stock show and rodeo month for the Denver region, I have two articles. First one, Black Cowboys in the 19th Century West and the Lesser Known History of African American Cowboys. Following those, in honor of Patrice Lumumba, I'll be reading one article, The Most Important Assassination of the 20th Century. He was assassinated in January 1961. But let's get started with current events. From TheRoot.com Written by Angela Johnson, posted January 20th. A D.C. entrepreneur buys strip mall for black-owned businesses. The Spice Sweets Angel Gregorio is giving black-owned businesses in the D.C. area a place to call their own. Angel Gregorio's specialty seasoning business, called the Spice Sweet, has always been about helping other black-owned businesses. She's hosted over 450 pop-ups for black businesses in her Washington, D.C. store. Gregorio knows firsthand how expensive it is to own commercial property in the Chocolate City. Now she's doing her part to provide other local black-owned businesses with an opportunity to have a brick-and-mortar space of their own. With a $1 million investment, Gregorio turned a 7,500-square-foot lot in the Langdon section of Washington, D.C. into a strip mall for local black-owned businesses. And she's calling the space Black and Forth. It was just this catchy, cool name that I created for how I describe my process of going back and forth with black, pardon me, with black business owners said Gregorio in an interview with DCist Wamu. She went on, and now it is the name of a shopping center, a strip mall that I own in DC. So I feel good about that, and I'm grateful to be in the space. Gregorio accessed the capital she used to buy the space through DC's Commercial Property Acquisition Fund which offers grants to eligible businesses to help them acquire commercial property. The fund is part of D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser's goal of increasing the city's share of minority-owned businesses to 33% by 2028. According to D.C.ist Wamu, the Bowser administration has already awarded $4 million dollars to 12 businesses, and they plan to continue to share the wealth. We're going to keep making these sorts of investments so we can do the sorts of transformational things that allow our black and brown entrepreneurs not only to be great business people, but to build wealth that they can pass on for generations to come, said at-large council member Kenyon McDuffie 
at Black and Forth's January 13th ribbon cutting ceremony. Along with relocating the Spice Suite, Black and Forth will host four other hair and nail salons who will lease space inside renovated shipping containers. Gregorio also hopes to add a black farmer's market in the spring. In a December Instagram post, Gregorio was optimistic about what Black and Forth will mean to black businesses and the community, she wrote. In an effort to create a model for affordable commercial space, parentheses, akin to affordable housing except privately owned by me, this space will be a lot of things, a lot of community. Next one's written by Kaylin Womack, published on the 27th. Alabama schools randomly cancel Black History Month event with award-winning author. Children's author Derek Barnes rejects any claims he backed out of the events. This starts with the word sigh. It is only expected that students will see a serious pushback on Black History Month activities. Two Alabama school districts have canceled events featuring New York Times best-selling children's author Derek Barnes, according to CBS 42 News. The reason wasn't necessarily spelled out as anti-critical race theory. However, it's certainly a safe assumption. Barnes was scheduled to visit schools in the Alabaster City and Hoover City school districts next month. Barnes is known for his children's books, Crown, An Ode to the Fresh Cut, and The King of Kindergarten, one of which he planned to read at the elementary schools he planned to visit. However, suddenly his appearance was canceled due to, quote, contract issues, the report says. Alabaster City didn't bother sending out a statement, but Hoover City addressed the parents, claiming they tried to request contact, pardon, contract information from Barnes on three occasions. Barnes called BS on that excuse. In his mind, the sudden backing out was a direct result of all the political discourse surrounding anti-racist learning. Here's a quote from CBS 42 News. His books, Barnes said, include no rationally objectional material. They focus on telling stories of black kids he didn't see in books he read growing up. I really try to focus on writing books where black children are doing slice-of-life things, he said. When I first got into the industry, all the books that were written by black authors that got awards were always about civil rights or slavery. No bedtime stories. No stories about going to school. Barnes said it's important that children of all races see black kids represented in literature. Barnes explained, It's important that white children, too, get a chance to see children that don't look like them doing the same things they do, having a family, having people around them that love and care about them, and just doing everyday things. It's frustrating, he said, that anyone would be opposed to such an effort. But... If you're black in this country and you're an artist, it automatically makes you an activist. He went on, because I think you really don't want me to come speak to your kids. What have I done other than spread love? Continuing with the article, Barnes, a self-proclaimed introvert, 
not only charged up his social battery for a month's worth of children's interactions for nothing, but also missed out on money from travel and board costs. Hoover City pledged to reimburse him, but it's not really about the money, is it? Black boys had no say in whether they felt comfortable with participating in the event or not. It's a common theme that black students are spoken for when it comes to opportunities to embrace their own history or culture. More often than not, the one speaking for them is white. And still reading from TheRoot.com. This one's by Jessica Washington. It was published on the 25th. Did Biden just make it easier for black Americans to pay off old student debt? Black Americans are drowning in student debt. Could a new retirement law help us pay for retirements while taking care of our student loans? Black Americans are drowning in student debt, and many of us struggle to keep up with the demands of paying off loans and saving for retirement. If you're tired of choosing between dodging debt collectors forever and working until you croak, you might want to learn about this new retirement law. Biden recently signed the Secure 2.0 bill, which makes some pretty important changes to how Americans can save for retirement. The most notable change is that employers can now match what someone spends on their student loan payments with retirement payments. Meaning, if you spend X amount of money on your student loan payments, your employer could match that amount in their contributions to your retirement plan. The law goes into effect in 2024, but the implications are pretty astounding, especially for black Americans who hold a pardon me, disproportionate amount of this country's student debt. Black women in particular carry a massive student debt burden. On average, black women have more than $38,000 in student loan debt according to Education Trust, and black women with master's degrees have over $58,000 in federal student loans. Student loan debt can be a massive inhibitor for saving for retirement. According to the Boston College Center for Retirement Research, bachelor's degree holders with student debt at age 30 have significantly less retirement funds than people without student loans making it so that people can simultaneously pay off their student loans and save for retirement could help close this gap. However, one thing this law doesn't solve is the fact that many black Americans, especially black women, have employers that don't offer retirement plans at all. Jeffrey Sonsenberger, sorry, pardon me, that's Sonsenbacher, an associate professor at Boston College and a research fellow at the Center for Retirement Research, told Dame Magazine that women of color are less likely than white women to be offered retirement plans through their employer. This bill would not force companies to offer student loan matching programs or other types of retirement programs. Helping more people save for retirement is obviously a great idea, but it'll be worth watching how many employers actually take Congress and the White House up on this new initiative and whether the benefits reach the people who need it the most. Moving to the Denver area, this one comes 
via the denverite.com and it was written by Kyle Harris posted January 17th Denver's Wagawan Brewery Company pardon me that's Brewing Company will close its tap room at the end of January this will be the end at least for now of one of the few black-owned tap rooms in the city Denver has a shortage of black-owned breweries and now one of these, the Jamaican taproom Wagawan Brewing Company, will be shuttering its doors at the end of the month. When the business opened 18 months ago at 925 West 8th Avenue, the owners hoped to create a space for community events and education. The goal was to launch a laid-back brewery, but also ignite social change within the craft brew industry. The brewery pours Jamaican-inspired brews like the Belgian Triple Three Little Birds and the coffee stout Black Caesar. Wagawan Brewing Company owners Harsha Marag and Jesse Brown announced the decision over the weekend on Facebook and said, It is with the heaviest heart that we're announcing the closure of the Wagawan Tap Room on January 31st. While we absolutely love our community and want to keep producing island brews, there are insurmountable external obstacles that have hindered us up until this point. Like many businesses that have tried to launch and survive the pandemic, Wagawan faced economic strife. The owners wrote, Inflation, rising costs, and the state of the economy have put us in this difficult position, and we are not able to remain open while providing the service you've come to love and expect. For Marag, who was born in the Bronx, to parents who immigrated from Jamaica, and Brown, who grew up in West Denver, opening a brewery in Colorado that celebrated our cultures was a dream, they wrote. And just because the brewing pardon me, the brewery is closing doesn't mean the dream is dead. In fact, the owners are already planning events and serving up their brews at venues around town. Even hope of a brick-and-mortar location remains, the owners noted. They're already looking for a new spot. They wrote, Closing our Denver taproom doesn't mean that Wagawan won't reopen someday. Next from CPR News, posted January 17th, written by Eden Lane. Dirty South, exhibit at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrates hip-hop's place among American art forms. An exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver is celebrating, quote, the visual and sonic output of the American South. The MCA's the Dirty South, colon, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse is the only stop outside the American South for the show. MCA's Miranda Lash, the Ellen Bruss Senior Curator, said this is the fourth stop for this exhibition. Lash said, MCA is the only venue not in the American South, but it actually feels deeply relevant to bring this show here because we believe you need to understand the legacy of the American South to understand American history writ large. 
the original curator of the show, Valerie Cassell Oliver of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, had extensive connections with Gulf South musicians after spending time in Houston. After Cassell Oliver relocated to Richmond, Virginia, she created the show to examine the history of artistic pursuits from the turn of the 20th century to the present day. Turning this sprawling idea into a cohesive journey as visitors walk through the exhibition had a distinct inspiration. I looked at music, particularly contemporary Southern hip-hop, because, the introductory text begins, with the South has something to say, the South has always had something to say, Cassell Oliver said, but it is something about how it manifested in that contemporary Southern hip-hop that really kind of gave inroads and mirrors to reflect the things that had always existed. The exhibition is divided into three sections, landscape, visioning slash spirituality, and the black body. Unlike a usual exhibition at MCA where the works are made of contemporary art spanning a few decades, Dirty South honors the musical and visual traditions of African Americans in the South by featuring the work of artists from the past century. So there were these overlays that even though these artists were born and raised in the South, we don't ordinarily think of them as Southern, but they carried so much of the South with them and embedded those aesthetics into their work, said Cassell Oliver. So it makes sense that this, what I was seeing as a new sense of bravado, was really always there, and it was how it manifested some ways very subtly, and, but certainly with the younger generation just outwardly pressed forward. What I began to like in that, too, was the sort of rise of Southern hip-hop. That Southern hip-hop sort of gave a new narrative to the South that did not exist, that had prior to that really been rooted in trauma, the trauma of the civil rights, and that this was just a very new way of seeing oneself as an African-American. The Dirty South also reveals the intersections between Southern culture, visual art, and music. The exhibit asks us to think about jazz and how jazz is often celebrated as the original American music form and all the cultural intersections that took place to give it rise. Cassell Oliver went on, but my statement was, what would be the visual equivalent of jazz? Where do we find this notion of improvisation? Where do we find the bending of not only notes, but the bending of materials? Where do we find the same conceptual framing that we use in black music? How do we see that? That's where those intersectionalities come from. It's conceptually how artists approach their particular disciplines. And so the same thing happens visually when we think of improvisation. Cassell Oliver said the South has always had something to say, but something about how it manifested in that contemporary Southern hip-hop sparked her vision. She said, the South has become so multifaceted, but in terms of its African-American journey, you do see naturalism, you see spiritualism, you see the Sinetic religious forms, and how that has always been reflected in the visual arts. 
The name of the exhibition, The Dirty South, might be confusing to anyone unfamiliar with the term, but Cassell Oliver said it is meant to celebrate the South's history as a power unto its own. Honestly, before it was coined in hip-hop, it was a term that I understood as a term of endearment and a term that meant the South itself was a land that was an agrarian society and an agrarian economic power. The economy of the South initially came from the land itself. It is a society with its roots in literally the soil. At the bottom it says, The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse is open through Sunday, February 5th. at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. And next, Black Cowboys in the 19th Century West, 1850 to 1900. This is written by Samuel Mamadou. It was originally published February 16, 2022. This comes from a source called blackpast.org. The earliest evidence of African Americans as cattle herders, quote, cowboy, I mean, pardon me, parentheses, cowboys, in North America can be traced back to colonial South Carolina, where stock grazers from what is now Senegal in West Africa were specifically brought to that colony because of their unique skills. They were brought to Spanish American colonies from Mexico to Argentina for similar reasons. Over the decades, the cattle industry and enslaved Africans who worked it migrated across the South and reached Texas by the 1850s. With one-third of the state's population comprising enslaved workers, African Americans were the majority of cowboys in Texas in the early 1850s. Enslaved cowboys were assigned the task of catching and tending wild cattle in the Gulf Coast brush country. Working with vaqueros who migrated north from Mexico, these herders often drove long trains of steers led by oxen and trailed by baying dogs. Francis Richard Lubbock, the Civil War governor of Texas, relied on his five bondsmen to tend the 2,000 head of cattle on his ranch near Houston, Texas. Lubbock allowed one slave named Willis to acquire cattle and horses to purchase his freedom for himself and his family. James Taylor White, the first Texas cattle baron, used African-American drovers for the thousands of cattle he owned in Liberty County, Texas. As early as 1854, Amanda Wildey depended on African-American slave cowboys to tend to her herd of cattle. Notable post-Civil War black cowboys included Pete Staples, a former Texas slave who joined the first cattle drives to Kansas, and Bose Eichard, who worked the Goodnight Loving Trail from Texas to Denver. Jim Perry was one of the black cowboys on the three-million-acre Exit Ranch, in the Texas Panhandle, while Daniel, 80 John, Wallace, who invented the cattle brand that became his middle name, 
became Texas's most successful black rancher. As the range cattle industry expanded out of Texas after the Civil War, black cowboys moved across the West along with it, working in every state and territory in the region with the largest numbers in Arizona Territory, California, Nevada, and New Mexico Territory. In Arizona Territory, African Americans John Swain and John Batavia worked for former Texas Ranger John Slaughter on his ranch near Tombstone. Thornton Biggs worked in northern Colorado. Print Olive worked in Nebraska. Nat Love in the Dakota Territory and ex-Texan Henry Harris became foreman on the Elko County Ranch of Nevada, Governor John Sparks. Even future President Theodore Roosevelt employed one black cowboy on his Dakota Territory ranch. Four African-American cowboys in New Mexico Territory were involved in the Lincoln County Range War of 1878 that produced William Bonney, Billy the Kid. Three black cowboys, George Washington, George Robinson, and Zebrian Bates, rode with Bonney and his regulators, while African-American John Clark worked for businessman rancher Lawrence Murphy. Over the decades, African-Americans, although still present, became smaller and smaller percentages of herders and drovers as whites moved into the industry. By 1890, the 473 African-American cowboys in Texas comprised only 3% of the total number of cowboys in the state. Overall, Black cowboys were about 2% of the total in the West by that time, as these workers sought better-paying employment in other industries. And on this topic, the next article, written by Katie Najimbadem, and it was posted, archived also, February 13, 2017. This comes from the, pardon me, the Smithsonian Magazine, the lesser-known history of African-American cowboys. One in four cowboys was black, so why aren't they more present in popular culture? In his 1907 autobiography, Cowboy Nat Love recounts stories from his life on the frontier so cliché they read like scenes from a John Wayne film. He describes Dodge City, Kansas a town smattered with the romanticized institutions of the frontier, quote, a great many saloons, dance halls, and gambling houses, and very little of anything else. He moved massive herds of cattle from one grazing area to another, drank with Billy the Kid, and participated in shootouts with native peoples defending their land on the trails, and when not, as he put it, engaged in fighting Indians, he amused himself with activities like daredevil riding, shooting, roping, and such sports. Though Love's tales from the frontier seem typical for a 19th century cowboy, they come from a source rarely associated with the Wild West. Love was African American, born into slavery near Nashville, Tennessee. Few images embody the spirit of the American West as well as the trailblazing, sharp shooting, horseback-riding cowboy of American lore. And, though African-American cowboys don't play a part in the popular narrative, historians estimate that one in four cowboys were black. 
The cowboy lifestyle came into its own in Texas, which had been cattle country since it was colonized by Spain in the 1500s. But cattle farming did not become the bountiful economic and cultural phenomenon recognized today until the late 1800s, when millions of cattle grazed in Texas. White Americans seeking cheap land and sometimes evading debt in the United States began moving to the Spanish and later Mexican territory of Texas during the first half of the 19th century. Though the Mexican government opposed slavery, Americans brought slaves with them as they settled the frontier and established cotton farms and cattle ranches. By 1825, slaves accounted for nearly 25% of the Texas settler population. By 1860, 15 years after it became part of the Union, that number had risen to over 30%. That year's census reported 182,566 slaves living in Texas. As an increasingly significant new slave state, Texas joined the Confederacy in 1861. Though the Civil War hardly reached Texas soil, many white Texans took up arms to fight alongside their brethren in the East. While Texas ranchers fought in the war, they depended on their slaves to maintain their land and cattle herds. In doing so, the slaves developed the skills of cattle tending, parentheses, breaking horses, pulling calves out of the mud, and releasing longhorns caught in the brush, to name a few, that would render them invaluable to the Texas cattle industry in the post-war era. But with a combination of a lack of effective containment, barbed wire was not yet invented, and too few cowhands, the cattle population ran wild. Ranchers returning from the war discovered that their herds were lost or out of control, they tried to round up the cattle and rebuild their herds with slave labor, but eventually the Emancipation Proclamation left them without the free workers on which they were so dependent. Desperate for, pardon me, desperate for help rounding up maverick cattle, ranchers were compelled to hire now free, skilled African Americans as paid cow hands. Right after the Civil War, being a cowboy was one of the few jobs open to men of color who wanted to not serve as elevator operators or delivery boys or other similar occupations, says William Lauren Katz, a scholar of African American history and the author of 40 books on the topic, including The Black West. Freed blacks skilled in herding cattle found themselves in even great pardon me, an even greater demand when ranchers began selling their livestock in northern states, where beef was nearly ten times more valuable than it was in cattle inundated Texas. The lack of significant railroads in the state meant that enormous herds of cattle needed to be physically moved to the shipping points in Kansas, Colorado, and Missouri. Rounding up herds on horseback, cowboys traversed unforgiving trails fraught with harsh environmental conditions and attacks from Native Americans defending their lands. African-American cowboys faced discrimination in the towns they passed through. They were barred from eating at certain restaurants or staying in certain hotels, for example. 
but within their crews they found respect and a level of equality unknown to other African Americans of that era. Love recalled the camaraderie of cowboys with admiration. He said, A braver, truer set of men never lived than these wild sons of the plains, whose home was in the saddle and their couch, Mother Earth, with the sky for a covering. He wrote, They were always ready to share their blanket and their last ration, pardon me, ration, with the less fortunate fellow companion, and always assisted each other in the many trying situations that were continually coming up in a cowboy's life. One of the few representations of black cowboys in mainstream entertainment is the fictional Josh Dietz in Texas novelist Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, a 1989 television miniseries based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, starred actor Danny Glover as Dietz, an ex-slave turned cowboy who serves as a scout on a Texas to Montana cattle drive. Dietz was inspired by real-life Bose Eichard, an African-American cowboy who worked on the Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving cattle drive in the late 19th century. The real-life Goodnight's fondness for Eichard is clear in the epitaph he penned for the cowboy when he said, Served with me four years on the good night loving trail, never shirked a duty or disobeyed an order, rode with me in many stampedes, participated in three engagements with Comanches, splendid behavior. The West was a vast open space and a dangerous place to be, says Katz. Cowboys had to depend on one another. They couldn't stop in the middle of some crisis like a stampede or an attack by rustlers and sort out who's black and who's white. Black people operated, quote, on a level of equality with the white cowboys, he says. The cattle drives ended by the turn of the century. Railroads became a more prominent mode of transportation in the West. Barbed wire was invented, and Native Americans were relegated to reservations, all of which decreased the need for cowboys on ranches. This left many cowboys, particularly African Americans who could not easily purchase land, in a time of rough transition. Love fell victim to the changing cattle industry and left his life on the wild frontier to become a Pullman porter for the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. To us, wild cowboys of the range, used to the wild and unrestricted life of the boundless plains, the new order of things did not appeal, he recalled. Many of us became disgusted and quit the wild life for the pursuits of our more civilized brother. Though opportunities to become a working cowboy were on the decline, the public's fascination with the cowboy lifestyle prevailed, making way for the popularity of Wild West shows and rodeos. Bill Pickett born in 1870 in Texas, two former slaves, became one of the most famous early rodeo stars. He dropped out of school to become a ranch hand and gained an international reputation for his unique method of catching stray cows. Modeled after his observations of how ranch dogs caught wandering cattle, Pickett controlled a steer by biting the cow's lip, thus subduing him. He performed his trick, called bulldogging, or steer-wrestling, 
for audiences around the world with the Miller Brothers 101 Wild Ranch Show. He drew applause and admiration from young and old, cowboy to city slicker, remarks Katz. In 1972, 40 years after his death, Pickett became the first black honoree in the National Rodeo Hall of Fame, and rodeo athletes still compete in a version of his event today. And he was just the beginning of a long tradition of African-American rodeo cowboys. Love, too, participated in early rodeos. In 1876, he earned the nickname Deadwood Dick. After entering a roping competition near Deadwood, South Dakota, following a cattle delivery. Six of the contestants, including Love, were, quote, colored cowboys. I roped, threw, tied, bridled, saddled, and mounted my Mustang in exactly nine minutes from the crack of the gun, he recalled. My record has never been beaten. No horse ever threw him as hard as that Mustang, he wrote, but I never stopped sticking my spurs in him and using my quirt on his flanks until I proved his master. Six, pardon me, 76-year-old Cleo Hearn has been a professional cowboy since 1959. In 1970, he became the first African-American cowboy to win a calf roping event at a major rodeo. He was also the first African-American to attend college on a rodeo scholarship. He's played a cowboy in commercials for Ford, Pepsi-Cola, and Levi's, and was the first African-American to portray the iconic Marlboro Man. But being a black cowboy wasn't always easy. He recalls being barred from entering a rodeo in his hometown of Seminole, Oklahoma, when he was 16 years old because of his race. They used to not let black cowboys rope in front of the crowd, says Roger Hardaway, a professor of history at Northwestern Oklahoma State University. They had to rope after everybody went home or the next morning. But Hearn did not let the discrimination stop him from doing what he loved. Even when he was drafted into John F. Kennedy's presidential honor guard, he continued to rope and performed at a rodeo in New Jersey. After graduating with a degree in business from Langston University, Hearn was recruited to work at the Ford Motor Company in Dallas, where he continued to compete in rodeos in his free time. In 1971, Hearn began producing rodeos for African-American cowboys. Today, his Cowboys of Color Rodeo recruits cowboys and cowgirls from diverse racial backgrounds. The Touring Rodeo features over 200 athletes who compete at several different rodeos throughout the year, including the well-known Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. Although Hearn aims to train young cowboys and cowgirls to enter the professional rodeo industry, his rodeo's goals are twofold. The theme of Cowboys of Color is let us educate you while we entertain you, he explains. Let us tell you the wonderful things blacks, Hispanics, and Indians did for the settling of the West that history books have left out. Though the forces of modernization eventually pushed love from the life he loved, he reflected on his time as a cowboy with endearment. He wrote that he would, quote, ever cherish a fond and loving feeling for the old days on the range, its exciting adventures, good horses, good and bad men, 
long, venturesome rides, Indian fights, and last but foremost, the friends I have made and friends I have gained. I gloried in the danger and the wild and free life of the plains, the new country I was continually traversing, and the many new scenes and incidents continually arising in the life of a rough rider. African-American cowboys may still be underrepresented in popular accounts of the West, but the work of scholars such as Katz and Hardaway and cowboys like Hearn keep the memories and undeniable contributions of the early African-American cowboys alive. Turning to The Guardian for the piece on Patrice Lumumba, the most important assassination of the 20th century. The U.S.-sponsored plot to kill Patrice Lumumba, the hero of Congolese independence, took place 50 years ago today. This says here, but this was posted in 2021. So it's 51 years now. Here we go. Patrice Lumumba, the first legally elected Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, was assassinate, assassinated 50 years ago today on the 17th of January, 1961. This heinous crime was a culmination of two interrelated assassination plots by American and Belgian governments, which used Congolese accomplices and a Belgian execution squad to carry out the deed. Ludo de Witt, the Belgian author of the best book on this crime, qualifies it as, quote, the most important assassination of the 20th century. The assassination's historical importance lies in a multitude of factors, the most pertinent being the global context in which it took place, its impact on Congolese politics since then, and Lumumba's overall legacy as a nationalist leader. For 126 years, the U.S. and Belgium have played key roles in shaping Congo's destiny. In April of 1884, seven months before the Berlin Congress, the U.S. became the first country in the world to recognize the claims of King Leopold II of the Belgians to the territories of the Congo Basin. When the atrocities related to brutal economic exploitation in Leopold's Congo Free State resulted in millions of fatalities, the U.S. joined other world powers to force Belgium to take over the country as a regular colony, and it was during the colonial period that the U.S. acquired a strategic stake in the enormous natural wealth of the Congo, following its use of the uranium from Congolese mines to manufacture the first atomic weapons, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. With the outbreak of the Cold War, it was inevitable that the U.S. and its Western allies would not be prepared to let Africans have effective control over strategic raw materials, lest these fall into the hands of their enemies in the Soviet camp. It is in this regard that Patrice Lumumba's determination to achieve genuine independence and to have full control over Congo's resources in order to utilize them to improve the living conditions of our people was perceived as a threat to Western interests. 
To fight him, the U.S. and Belgium used all the tools and resources at their disposal, including the United Nations Secretariat under Dag Hammarskjöld and Ralph Bunce, to buy the support of Lumumba's Congolese rivals and hired killers. In Congo, Lumumba's assassination is rightly viewed as the country's original sin, coming less than seven months after independence. On the 30th of June, 1960, it was a stumbling block to the ideals of national unity, economic independence, and pan-African solidarity that Lumumba had championed, as well as a shattering blow to the hopes of millions of Congolese for freedom and material prosperity. The assassination took place at a time when the country had fallen under four separate governments. The central government in Kinshasa, which was then Leopoldville, a rival central government by Lumumba's followers in Kisangani, which was then called Stanleyville, and the secessionist regimes in the mineral-rich provinces of Katanga and the South Kasai. Since Lumumba's physical elimination had removed what the West saw as the major threat to their interests in the Congo, internationally-led efforts were undertaken to restore the authority of the modern, pardon me, moderate and pro-Western regime in Kinshasa over the entire country. These resulted in ending the Lumumbist regime in Kisagami in August of 1961, the secession of South Kasai in September of 1962, and the Katanga secession in January 1963. No sooner did this unification process end than a radical social movement for, quote, a second independence arose to challenge the neocolonial state and its pro-Western leadership. This mass movement of peasants, workers, the urban and employed, students, and lower civil servants found an eager leadership among Lumumba's lieutenants, most of whom had regrouped to establish a National Liberation Council, CNL, in October 1963 in Brazzaville, across the Congo River from Kinshasa. The strengths and weaknesses of this movement may serve as a way of gauging the overall legacy of Patrice Lumumba for Congo and Africa as a whole. The most positive aspect of this legacy was manifest in the selfless devotion of Pierre Mulele to radical change for purposes of meeting the deepest aspirations of the Congolese people for democracy and social progress. On the other hand, the CNL leadership was more interested in power and its attendant privileges than in the people's welfare. This is Lumumbism in words rather than deeds. And as president, three decades later, Laurent Kabila did little to move away from words instead of deeds. More importantly, the greatest legacy that Lumumba left for Congo is the ideal of national unity. Recently, a Congolese radio station asked me whether the independence of South Sudan should be a matter of concern with respect to national unity in the Congo. I responded that since Patrice Lumumba has died for Congo's unity, our people will remain utterly steadfast in their defense of our national unity. At the bottom of this article it says, George, um, Jorge, Jorge, probably, hmm, forgive my mispronunciation, 
Zagola Natalia, that's probably Natalaja, is professor of African and Afro-American studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author of The Congo from Leopold to Kabila, A People's History. And now there's a book review of sorts. Well, yes, in fact, a book review from the New York Times, and this is a current article. This was written and posted on January 16th, 2023, written by Dwight Garner, An Oral History of Rikers Island. In a new book, a wide range of voices weigh in on the notorious jail complex. The book is Rikers, An Oral History by Graham Raymond and Reuven Blau. One of the takeaways of Rikers, An Oral History, a new book by the journalists Graham Raymond and Reuven Blau, is the shock inmates feel upon entering this rundown and lawless prison for the first time. It's not just the sense of peril, the reek of toilets and cramped quarters, and the nullity of the concept of presumption of innocence. It's an awareness, as one interviewee puts it, that, quote, nobody cared and nobody was watching. Alongside that shock, the rapper Fat Joe tells the authors, is the awareness that if you grew up in the projects and attended the public schools, you know this place. Quote, I'm willing to bet that the same architect designed all three things, he says, having visited friends at the jail complex when he was growing up. He goes on, I'm telling you I was born in Rikers. Rikers occupies a 415-acre island, most of it landfill, in the East River between Queens and the Bronx. If you take off from LaGuardia, there it is, right off to the left. It's close, but oddly far away. One skinny, terrifying bridge leads out to it, terrifying to prisoners at any rate, because if your bus rolls into the river, as one detainee puts it, there's little chance of survival when you're in a cage and in shackles. It's certainly far away for relatives and other loved ones. Visiting an inmate in Rikers is a degrading experience that often takes up an entire day between the buses and the interminable waiting, even if your visit is an hour. A lot of people give up and stop making the trip. Raymond and Blau have each worked for the Daily News, among other New York City newspapers. Blau now works for The City, a nonprofit digital news site, they cast a wide net in Rikers, an oral history. They have interviewed not just former inmates, but officials, correction officers. Guards hate the word guards, they tell us. Lawyers, social workers, chaplains, gang leaders, mob guys, clinicians. The result is a bit chaotic, as oral histories tend to be, but the chaos feels true to the experience of prison. This impressive book throws a lot at you, and much of the reading is difficult. The authors break their material into chapters. First day, race, gangs, violence, solitary, food, riots, escapes, death, and so on. 
There is no section on rape, and curiously there's relatively little here about sex, forced or otherwise. The authors are apparently excellent interviewers. They get people to say extraordinary things, like the retired guard who admits to having beaten a prisoner for, quote, four hours straight because he'd been disrespected. Here's a quote. And nobody came to help him. Nobody. He screamed. Nobody said two words. It was quiet, but he was screaming. I got tired. I took a break. I came back and I did it again. Remember the old James Cagney movies when you see the head in the toilet? I did that too with my black bitch for the day. End quote. The authors were shocked and followed up with the guard who changed one detail claiming that this had occurred, quote, for about an hour. There is so much material in this book that it's hard to condense one's impressions. Futility is the first word that comes to mind. Everyone knows that Rikers is worse than a hellhole, the kind of place a civilized society should not countenance, but its problems, despite decades of sound advice from special commissions and elsewhere, seem intractable. Everyone at this point stares out at their intellectual opponents like boxers at the start of the ninth round. Reading Rikers, you begin to understand those who have called for closing the prison entirely. Martin Horn, who was the city's correction commissioner from 2002 to 2009, puts part of the problem this way. No mayor has ever gone on to national prominence based on how well they ran their prisons or their jails. The other word that comes to mind is simply danger. One guard tells the authors that, walking around Rikers, you can hear things being sharpened. Almost anything can be turned into a shank. Terminating quarrels are always about an epithet away. The lawyer Ron Kuby, whose comments throughout the book are humane and eloquent, tells the authors, On the outside world, in the free world, it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. In a place like Rikers, the squeaky wheel gets shut down and shut up in a cell so deep that nobody can hear the wheels squeak anymore. That was in reference to solitary confinement. Kubi is among those who are aware, are aware pardon me, that many of the people in Rikers should not be there at all. They should be in a drug rehab program or a mental hospital. The former commissioner, Joseph Pont, used to say that Rikers was the de facto largest mental hospital on the East Coast. It's the city's bad conscience. The travel writer Jan Morris made it a practice whenever she went to drop in on court hearings. She did this, she wrote, to learn about the, quote, social, political, and moral condition of a place. Morris had a special loathing for bureaucratized cruelty, and she visited courts to, for the pure pleasure of offering the accused a smile of sympathy, while eyeing judges, court clerks, and self-satisfied barristers with the deliberate look of mordant ridicule. The inhumanity described in Rikers and Oral History makes you want to do something similar with prisons. The final chapters of this book are intensely moving. Rikers changes you. It leaves you worse off than you were before you arrived. People who leave aren't sent off with much outside this warning about a recidivist curse, which is, quote, When you leave Rikers, don't ever look back. 
Don't look back in the car or the bus, or else you'll come back. And I looked up, yes, this is available as an audiobook from quite a few sources. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.